What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Done By Law. I'd like to start this episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You are listening to Done By Law on 3CR and we are interviewing Gregor Husper this evening who is from the Police Accountability Project. Welcome to Done By Law, Gregor. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Now, we wanted to get you on Done By Law because there was some very concerning footage of an arrest um, that occurred in Epping in um, Victoria a couple of days ago. First of all, can you tell our audience what happened and then we'll have a bit of a chat about what we might do about it? Sure. And I'm giving this version on what we've seen and what I've read in the media. It's unfortunate that we don't have the... um, the person's personal and direct experience to to take and to hear from because, I mean, that would be valuable to hear their own experience. But we have heard from the person's father and so that and the the reporting is what this is built on. So what we saw in the the footage is the police forcefully driving their vehicle into him. Now, there is no permissible situation, really, where the police can drive their vehicle into somebody to, to arrest them. Uh, firstly, why are they arresting this person? Well, under the Mental Health Act, they can arrest a person or they can bring a person into custody if they think that person is going to cause serious injury to themselves or to another person. So you, you even have to doubt whether that is the case, whether this person's at risk of causing serious injury. Um, ideally, in any case, we say that health professionals should have, be, should have been called and not police. But then if we have the situation where police are called, um, shouldn't they seek to de-escalate? Should they assess the situation? Why do they feel the need to violently arrest that person? And even if they are um, executing an arrest, they can only use proportionate force. And there's no world in which that would allow them to drive into that person. Later on, we see footage, and he, he's on the ground. And in the footage, he looks orange. And that would be the capsicum spray. So the OC spray, or OC foam, is orange in color. And it looks like he's been covered in OC foam. And he's crawling around and and undoubtedly, I would think, trying to relieve himself of the pain. So a person covered in OC spray is not just going to lie prone. They might, but more likely than not, they're going to be highly agitated and try to to alleviate the pain. So whenever you see the police saying, oh, we sprayed them with OC spray, but they weren't compliant. Well, they're compliant on one level, but they're still moving. And the police officer then stamps him with, you know, stomps him with his foot. Again, it's excessive use of force on any measure. For anybody who hasn't seen the footage, it is very confronting. It's um, very disturbing to see police violence of this kind happening. Gregor, has there been any information from Victoria Police about whether or not this is going to be investigated either internally or, or through IBAC? I've not heard directly that that is going to be the case, but you'd say with a high degree of confidence that there will be subject to a review uh, by Victoria Police and possibly by IBAC as well. IBAC tend to jump on matters 
or respond to matters that have a high profile and, and are of concern to the community. But we wouldn't have any great confidence in that process. Mm, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because I know uh, on previous episodes of Done by Law, we covered the hares and hyenas um, botched raid and the ensuing um, IBAC investigation into that. And many members of the LGBTIQ community in particular are quite dissatisfied with the outcome. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what IBAC is and what some of the current problems with it are? Well, I might, if I just start with the police investigating police, so over 90% of all police complaints are investigated by police themselves. And the, the substantiation rate on police complaints, in other words, the rate at which those complaints, complaints are found to have any merit, is less than 10%. And in the case of police assaults, it's about 4%. And of course, that doesn't mean that a police officer has been charged or lost their job. It might just be, we could have done better. And even that sits at around 4%. And so there's this inherent bias when police investigate, do these investigations, that it's a process for, by which police, in our experience, seek to um, exculpate themselves, in other words, find a legitimate basis for their behaviour and to minimise any wrongdoing. Now, when IBAC investigates, they, they come in over the top and their investigation is independent of the police, but to a large extent they still depend on police resources and the, police investi the, the investigations that the police have done and they rely to a great extent on that material for the work that they do. So, look, I think hares and hyenas was a really unfortunate and, a, and a, you know, a, a misstep by IBAC and their findings. But broadly, we would say that IBAC are in a, a much better place to do reviews than the Victoria Police are, and would be even far better empowered to do that if they really took over the role of, of Victoria Police. And, you know, they're a properly funded, transparent, victim-centred, properly funded, but that's not the case at the moment. So we do have difficulties with IBAC reviews. I do remember reading something quite recently about issues around funding with IBAC. Is that, um, are they like particularly lacking funding at the moment or is this a chronic issue with IBAC? I think it's a chronic issue and IBAC have said, said as much as well themselves. So um, Robert Redley, QC, he's a commissioner. He, um, yeah, he, he's, he's, his report, recent reports to Parliament all talk about the need for more funding for IBAC. They're definitely underfunded. And I, I imagine that they're intensely overworked. Their portfolio isn't just police misconduct, but also um, statutory misconduct and misconduct by public in the public service. And there's been so many of those instances at the moment recently that I think they're, they're, over, they're overwhelmed. Uh, but we're, we're talking about is not just uh, more funding for the existing IBAC model, but we would advocate a model where police... Um, where, where IBAC have a much more central role in investigating and, and they have their own investigators who are independent of police who would arrive early on, who would be victim-centred. And, and so ideally a police complaints body would look very different to, to what we currently have. The Victorian government has a, has a report currently before it, a joint parliamentary commission report into IBAC that recommends precisely this sort of model and they've been sitting on their hands for over 18 months on a on this bipartisan report that says IBAC should be funded to be an independent police complaints body. Gregor, is it unusual to have a police complaint system like this that is not independent, or is this fairly typical of the way that it works around the world at the moment? Yeah, this is actually the norm. Uh, most police complaints bodies are internal and, and run by police. There are examples of better systems, and the, um, the Northern Ireland, the police, uh, it's called Pony, Last name, but it's the police. Remember the O stands for in Northern Ireland, and that is 
an independent body and they intentionally sought to recruit almost exclusively from non-police officers so as to avoid um, you, you know authority capture that sort of where yeah, that, that closeness that would have existed otherwise. And to just circle back to what happened in Epping, you mentioned before that the person who was um, violently arrested by the police may have been suffering from a significant mental health condition at the time. I had a look on your website and I saw that um, the Police Accountability Project has made some recommendations of how people experiencing mental illness when dealing with the police should be dealt with. Can you tell us um, what the Police Accountability Project says about that? Yeah, so we put a submission into the recent Royal Commission investigation into mental health, and really everything that happens in this for this poor, per, for this unfortunate incident, is um, are issues that we that our clients have been telling us up till now, and which are, which we highlight in our report. And so I think the the primary problem is that look overwhelmingly, we, we would advocate you know decast uh, you know. Um, less use of police and less police contact. So essentially what we would advocate in the community is less police contacts for everybody, but especially less police contacts for people who have mental illness. And in fact, frequently, people with mental illness come to the attention of the police and are stopped by police and are spoken to police, not because of any underlying offending, but merely because their behavior brings them to the attention of police. Now, these people have no, any more than anybody else walking down the street, have a right to be down the street and not to be harassed by police, but they find themselves coming to the attention of police. And of all people, they're probably people who would least likely like to come to the attention of police because they find themselves, um, the situation becomes stressful for them, and very frequently a, uh, a situation where there was no underlying offending becomes one where they seek to defend themselves and it escalates to one where there is contact offending against the police officer. So we would say from the outset that this is perhaps not so much the Epping environment situation, but broadly, um, there should be less contact, community contact from police officers. But the Epping one situation goes further than that, in that what there should have been there is a health response. So all too frequently we see that people who are experiencing a mental health episode, the police come in and then those people end up with the worst outcome. What would have been far preferable here is that if there'd been a non-aggressive, de-escalatory, care-based response to this individual, led by mental health professionals. You mentioned that these recommendations form part of a submission that you made to the Royal Commission into the mental health system. Um, I think I've seen an interim report come out, but I could be wrong. Do you have any sense of whether the Royal Commission is planning on taking those recommendations up or whether they've addressed them at all yet? I have not seen the interim report. We were just recently talking with Legal Aid and they've, they're doing some follow-up work. They've done a fantastic report on where, where they speak the voices of their clients and it's, a, it's just fantastic because, yeah, they've, essentially this is not their submission but this is a submission of people's lived experiences. And uh, you, you would hope that, those sort of rec that the recommendations would be taken up. I can't tell you if that's the case at the moment. And I've not read the interim report, to be quite honest. I'd also be very keen to hear from you, Gregor, about what's going on in the police accountability space more generally. Obviously, during COVID-19, we've seen, you know, an unprecedented increase in everyday policing on the streets and an increase to police powers. Has there been an increased um, level of a request for assistance around unfair policing from your project? Yeah, so interestingly, at the moment, I mean, just... 
you know, talking about COVID, um, we are getting a lot of inquiries, and so are our colleagues in the community legal sector from people who are talking, who, who complain about um, heavy-handed policing. And this isn't just from that cohort of people who are advocating against the, the, uh, the lockdown and entirely, but, but I guess ordinary people who have been subject to uh, the policing of the chief health officer's requirements, so particularly, for example, the, yeah, the lockdown requirements. And what, I mean, I guess our perspective on this is that we recognise that during a health crisis that necessarily some rights are going to be eroded, but you still have to approach this from a rights-based perspective, and I think that you need to at all times prioritise those rights and see, and, and in fact, the legislation requires them in the response to the pandemic to take a rights-based approach and to erode rights as, as, as little as possible. And what we're seeing is we're seeing, I guess, an, a group of people, the Victoria Police, who are poorly equipped to make discretionary decisions and habitually make them in an adverse way against marginalised and disadvantaged people. So young people, people with mental illness, uh, people of uh, Aboriginal people, people of non-English speaking background, people of colour. In, in our experience, they're contacting us and describing situations where really and manifestly they ought to be getting a warning. And again, this comes down to less police contact. I think the difficulty is that we're trying to police our way out of a pandemic, and this ought to have been a public health response, not a police response. Do you get a sense whether Victoria Police themselves are comfortable in the role of, you know, essentially pl playing that health role? Or has there been sort of pushback from Victoria Police as well playing that role? Or are they happy to have the extra powers at the moment? Look, it seems to me, if you look at the, um, the, the, the presses that the that the Chief Commissioner has given, and previously when he was an Assistant Commissioner, they seem to be zealously enjoying the role. They might say on the one part, they might say that they're not, but a lot of what they say, they're zealously saying, look, we're going to enforce this, the gloves are off, this is the language that they're using. Um, and so, yeah, I think this fits well within the police paradigm of controlling situations, putting people in their place. And I think that's where we're coming into the difficulties and that they're not using their discretions. We're seeing huge inconsistencies in the way that they that, that people are being policed. And even more worrying, well, not more worrying, but an additional concern is that uh, the Chief Commissioner had previously said that they would only be enforcing those and they would have a review on those matters which weren't manifestly un, you know, inappropriate or where there hadn't been a, um, an egregious and deliberate flaunting of the rules, that so those matters would be withdrawn. But we we, Fitzroy Legal Service and Youth Law, have put in quite a number of review requests and not a single one has ever been withdrawn. So the police, the police tell us they've withdrawn matters, but we are on a, not, no one client of ours has ever been withdrawn on review. Wow, that's extraordinary, not one. Um. <laughs> not one, and we've had, we've had some incredible examples, people with mental illness coming out of the chemist, jumped by police, um, young people two days after the first lockdown was announced on their way home. Do you think that um, to some extent it's an issue of training? Like, you know, you've mentioned their police needing to use their discretion um, more sagely. Like, do you think that there is a Victoria Police that, that exercises um, due process or is it simply whenever you're going to have this many police on the street, these kind of mistakes are going to happen? How do you see that? We don't support... Uh, look, I think the training, that the, let's have more training, is a real risk. 
this is a, a cop-out that the police always come back to whenever there's a coronial inquiry and they've killed another person with mental illness. They always talk about the need for more training or they'll say, well, since that happened, we've had much more tra new training. The statistics are, are, are not changing and it's not a question of more training. It's a, it's a question of culture change. So they have to face up to their, um, their aggressive approach to policing with people with mental illness where they come in and they try to control that situation. The person tries to control their own safety by removing themselves from that situation or trying to act protectively and the police continue to escalate it. Um, their systemic racism in the police force, this isn't a question of more training. Um, th this is a, you need a root and branch change to, to, to um, see any change in, in this and it's not gonna be about more training. And because time and again, we've had these coronial inquiries and we've had these reviews and that there hasn't been any improvement. And I think not the fact that they know that they can act with impunity because we don't have an effective police complaint system is also a problem. Uh, the militarization of police sends the wrong signal that we're backing them to act in a more militaristic way. And the solutions don't lie there. The solutions lie in um, defunding and funding community services and health services. And just finally, Gregor, it occurs to me that as we're moving, hopefully, towards the end of lockdown in late October, wh what do you think the role of the police is going to be, you know, going forward? Like, do you think that there's going to be a, a period in which they're going to find it difficult to relinquish the extra level of control they've exercised in society? And do you see a role for, you know, um, civil society in kind of, <laughs> trying to get the police to take take a less hands-on approach to their policing of the public as we go out of lockdown. Yeah, so one of the one of the issues at the moment with, with COVID is that it's given the police an automatic right to speak to anybody whenever they want to on the street. And we've advocated that police should really only be able to stop a person on the street if they believe that they've committed an offence. And so when COVID falls away, we would, you know, ideally we would like to see um, far less encounters between police and members of the public. But you do wonder whether they'll feel emboldened by this approach where they can come up to anybody they want to on the street and, street and demand them to give an account of themselves. Disturbingly, we've already seen reports, um, press statements that the police have given that they're going to target certain known gang offenders. This is code for all people of colour um, who they think are going to engage in, in, a, in a crime wave as soon as the lockdown comes down. So they're, they're flagging what their approach is post-lockdown, and it's more of the same. It's, it's targeting, racialised police targeting of young people. Well, Gregor, we're so glad to have the Police Accountability Project and other organisations like yours um, fighting for our civil rights in these um, unprecedented times, as everybody keeps saying. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. If people want to stay in touch with the Police Accountability Project, um, where can they have a look online? Sure, that, so they can go to policeaccountability.org.au and they'll find our website. Or if you just Google police accountability, yeah, they can contact us through there. Great. Thanks so much, Gregor. Okay, you're very welcome. Nice to speak to you, Sam. Thank you for tuning in to Done By Law. We're going to leave you with one final track. This is Shea Diamond's I'd Love To Change The World. Thanks for listening to Done By Law on 3CR. Coming up next, Voices of West Papua.